coming up on the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. The, the challenge in the field right now is to figure out how, how do we determine if the tumor is responding or not, and how can we figure that out earlier rather than later. This is the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Doctorpreneurs Podcast, the intersection of health, aging, and all things entrepreneurship. Um, my name is Dr. Lim Geng Yen. I'm your host today. And together with me is my co-host, none other than Andrew Mastrin Donas. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Yeah. Um, welcome back to the Dr. Pranos podcast. I'm so excited to kickstart our second season. We had a 10 plus one bonus episode in our first season. And if you haven't uh, heard it yet, you can always check out our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts from. Um, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the season. And we're going to kickstart off um, the second season with someone who is pretty dear to my heart. Uh, he's actually my own brother, and he's the one that is doing his uh, PhD in the US. So Dr. Pranos podcast, the doctor is not only for medical doctors, it's also for uh, PhD doctors as well, I, as well, I guess. <laughs> and um, yeah, so so uh, welcome to the show. Uh Soon to be Dr. Lim Zwanfu. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, he is currently uh, pursuing his PhD in West Virginia University, but he's back in Malaysia with us during his uh, break. Uh, this is, I would consider this a winter break, probably. But unfortunately, I heard that you are being quarantined in a hospital. Tell us what. Tell tell us what's going on. Yeah. So I uh, I had tested positive after I arrived in Malaysia and. Uh, uh, apparently, because I'm I traveled from the U.S., uh, it's considered a high risk country in Malaysia, and therefore I have to quarantine at a hospital for 14 days. What were the procedures like? Uh, you know, leaving the U.S. and getting on the plane in terms of mask wearing and all of that. Yeah. So um, the the I would say the regulations are a little were a little confusing to read. But once I understood them, they were actually pretty straightforward. Uh, all I needed, but, and the other thing was that different countries had different requirements for testing and quarantine and all those things. And it was not clear, like I was, I was traveling out of New York and I was gonna transit in Singapore before coming into Malaysia. And it was not clear what are the requirements for passengers who are just transiting. Um, but in the end, I figured it out that I was supposed to get a negative PCR test and the test had to be done no more than 48 hours before uh, I depart from New York. Um, and as long as I had that and kept my mask on uh, during the flight and I would be allowed to, to board uh, and fly home. So you had a negative PCR test before boarding the flight in, in the U.S. And you actually yes. had a negative rtk test when you arrive at uh arrive in malaysia as well uh on arrival they actually i'm pretty sure they did a pcr test they uh there were actually officials at the airport who swabbed they did a nasal uh pharyngeal swab and an oropharyngeal swab and uh i believe that was a pcr test i got the results like two three days afterwards okay and it was negative and then you had to do another Mm -hmm. pcr test again during day five Yes. So that was what I was told when I arrived at the airport. 
uh, was that, you know, at day five, I had to get a, a, another PCR test. I had to go to this place or call this number. And, uh, and that was to verify whether or not I'm still negative for COVID. But the second swap, uh, or rather the third swap, came back to be positive, right? Yeah, that was what I was told. Uh, that news came quick. Like I got swapped on the, on the 22nd, and on the night of the 23rd was when I found out uh, they, get, they had given me a call and said, oh, you tested positive for COVID. We now need to quarantine you. Uh-huh. Andrew, you have any, you have any questions for him on this? <laughs> well, I guess uh, if you're coming from a, quote, high-risk country into Malaysia, you can't quarantine at home or other facilities. You have to go to the hospital. So that was the interesting thing. I, I had everybody coming into Malaysia had to quarantine for a period of time. Um, before I traveled, I had, I had applied for home quarantine. And this is a recently established policy in, in Malaysia, as far as I know. Um, but I had applied to quarantine at home. And because I was fully vaccinated, I only had to quarantine at home for seven days initially. That was the plan coming in. Um, but what had happened was, on, and, and I just had to get tested when I arrived at the airport in Malaysia, and I had to get tested on the fifth day after arrival. Um, then what happened was I tested positive, and so therefore they extended the, the duration of the quarantine, and now I have to quarantine for 14 days. Yeah, it, it, Andrew, that was a really good question, because um, I, I, I asked this question too, like to the, to the uh, officials or the, or the, ministry, the ministry people, or the doctors right. rather. Uh, why some people had to be quarantined for seven days, some people get quarantined in the hospital for 10 days and others 14 days. And uh, well, I was pretty, I mean, I was pretty uh, dumbfounded when he answered me that they don't really know what the real policies are in place as well. So, I mean, well, uh, well, I thanked him for his honesty uh, because he too, I mean, he was being honest that he, he's not really sure what's going on and and I think probably the reason why his the uh, food is being quarantined for fourteen days is because, uh, you know, coming back from the U.S., the Omicron variant right now is the dominant strain, the dominant variant in the U.S. So that could be possibly the reason why they wanted to make sure that he's he's um, completely uh, clean before letting him out of the quarantine. But here's yeah, the funny cool. part, Andrew. Uh, well, let me just finish the funny part. I've been sharing the same room with Fu for the past like what six days seven days and <laughs> and we and i tested negative for my pcr i've done it twice it's a, well i've done two swaps one rtk one pcr and both came back negative so i don't know how this works yeah but for you're completely asymptomatic right yeah i have no symptoms at all and uh um yeah i, I really don't know how to explain this I, the, the, my, the best rationale I have in my head is that, well, probably because I'm vaccinated and that would contribute to, you know, uh, uh, even if I had COVID, I wouldn't show any symptoms or I wouldn't be as infectious as if I weren't vaccinated. So maybe that's the reason why. And, and you had three Moderna vaccines, right? That's like probably the best kind of vaccines, best combination you can get. Yeah. Well, yep. that or Pfizer, I imagine. Yeah, that and Pfizer probably. Yeah. And, and uh, your CT value, in fact, was, uh, was pretty high. That means um, the viral load, the viral content uh, in the swap was actually very low. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So, 
But you can't tell if it was Omicron or, or Delta. That you, That's not possible to know that? That was the other thing. Um, I was told that uh, because the viral content was so low, they didn't have enough of the sample to run genomic testing to figure out what variant it was. Ah. So they only knew that I, I was positive. They didn't know what variant I got. Right. So once you're ordered to be quarantined in the hospital here, who pays for that? I, I, I don't have to pay for that. I'm assuming that this is all taxpayers' money. Okay. <laughs> yeah, if, if you're a local Malaysian being quarantined in the government hospital in Malaysia, pretty much the, the government takes care of all the expenses. So how, how is it in a government hospital? Is the food crappy or what's it like? Uh, so this hospital in particular, and I probably shouldn't talk too loud because the nurses can probably hear me. Right. <laughs> it's, not, it's not air conditioned. There's no Wi-Fi. Uh, the place is a little run down, but the people are very nice. I, I do have to commend them for... Um, just being very kind because uh, I, I remember there was once during my stay that I had uh, asked one of the nurses if my family could bring some food for me uh, just out of curiosity like I wasn't starving or anything they, they were feeding me four times a day um, but it, they had told me no like because this is a COVID quarantine center you're not allowed to bring outside food in uh, and after they told me that, they actually had somebody go to the, I believe they got this from the cafeteria, but they went to the cafeteria and got a bunch of snacks for me, which I thought was really kind. Are there, are there many quarantine cases in that hospital, as far as you know? Uh, I, so I've only seen one floor. They, they, they have a whole procedure of like when they got me to the hospital and I had to ride on an ambulance. That was actually my first time riding on an ambulance. Wow. Uh, and I got to got to the hospital. They brought me straight to my floor. And I think walking past, I saw probably two or three other patients on the same floor. Um, and again, some of them could be in, in individual isolation wards that I didn't see. Um, but there's at least like five, five other patients who are quarantined with me on this floor. Mm -hmm. Wow. And probably those that are with you, because you are actually being quarantined in one of the district, uh, quarantined in one of the district hospitals, um, which you know sometimes that also explains the hospital has hospitality and the service level as well, because they are generally less busy, and because you are asymptomatic, and most of the people right. together with you are asymptomatic, um, uh, therefore they they are more keeping you guys there for observation to make sure that you guys don't right. spread, the, spread the virus around as compared to the general hospitals. Um, well, do, where you are is the street hospital as compared to the general hospital, which is handling more difficult cases, more uh, severe cases of COVID, uh, long COVID cases, ICU cases. Uh, I think generally mm -hmm. the, the practitioners there are, are quite busy. But um, really, one thing, uh, shout out to the, all the frontliners in Malaysia. They've been doing a really good job during this COVID period, um, you know, being, putting, them, putting their lives at risk, being um, at the forefront, um, uh, combating this, this, uh, this whole pandemic. Um, and yeah, great job uh, to the frontliners. And, you know, thank you all for, for all your service. Uh, the politicians, uh, I want to say much about them. Yeah, yeah. Not thankful. Nope. <laughs> what, what I find interesting is if this had happened in reverse, if you had been 
you had gone back to America and you were pulled off the plane and thrown in a hospital for 14 days, I think all the freedom people would have gone crazy. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I, I, I think there are people whom I've told about my, my experience who are Americans and they're like, oh, you know, things should be stricter in America. Right. You know, I, t- I told them about how I get tested at the airport and then I get tested again on the fifth day. And you don't, there, there's no such policies in America. You get to the airport, you're expected to kind of quarantine yourself if you have any symptoms and if you're worried to go get tested on your own, but the government wants nothing to do with it. Yeah, yep. what, what I find amazing in, in Malaysia is that in some ways it's actually, it's actually ahead of other countries. Um, I was reading about uh, in Greece where my ancestors are from and they're now just implementing an app for COVID-19 mm. with QR codes and all of that. And we've had this for how long? almost two years in Malaysia. It's just amazing to me, actually, that Malaysia is actually ahead of the game in a lot of areas. Yeah, well, um, I guess from a public health standpoint, um, we do take this whole pandemic uh, very seriously. And uh, generally in Malaysia, privacy and freedom is not so much of a concern. I wouldn't say we don't care about it. We do. But right. not as much as the freedom people, you know, like what you, like what you guys are describing in the West. But um, I think Omicron, this variant, many people view it as a bad news, but um, controversially, uh, controversially, I would say that it's actually pretty good news for everyone. Because as we know, as the virus mutates in progress, um, it, it becomes more infectious and less de- deadly. So this is something that, um, that it has always happened to different strands of viruses uh, throughout history. And that's because there is no advantage of the virus killing us all. Because if the, if the virus wipes out the entire human race, they go extinct as well because they won't have a host. So essentially the virus wants to survive and wants to cohabitate together with, the, with human beings, right? So there's no point for them to kill us. Therefore, they become less um, deadly. Less, uh, it causes less um, severe symptoms, but uh, it spreads fa- faster. And you know, eventually when... The, the, the next two or three variants that are come that are, that are going to come out, uh, it's going to be just like the common cold. So there really isn't much to be worried about um, COVID-19 anymore. We can't be living in fear forever. Yeah, I think some would, some might dispute what you're saying. I mean, I'd rather not get Omicron, but I see, I see your point from a scientific uh, perspective. That yeah. Make sense. Yeah. In fact, in fact, like, um, you know, it, it's it's because like the Omicron virus is 140 times more infectious than the original variant. That makes that means sooner or later, everyone on this planet is going to get some form of COVID <laughs> sooner or later. Mm-hmm. And the point of the vaccines is to reduce the severity and the hospitalization rate and death rate. We know vaccines don't really prevent the spread of the virus. So, um, right. so, so I think eventually all this at some point are going to get it. Uh, and the best case scenario is like what Fu is going through. He gets it. He's asymptomatic. It get, it's a little bit annoying having to go through quarantine, but <laughs> generally you are going to emerge stronger with three Moderna vaccines and natural immunity. So essentially you are COVID-proof once again. Yeah, yeah. Here's a question for you, though. If it's very infectious and, and they're saying millions or even billions of people could get the Omicron variant, right. isn't there a statistical issue that while it may be less severe for a lot of people, just given the sheer numbers of people that get it, you still could see 
an impact on hospitals for those who do end up with severe cases? Well, I completely agree because like human beings, the way we perceive risks is often in absolute and not in uh, percentage, right? So as Omicron spreads, we are going to see the number of cases rise up because it's, it's simply a more infectious variant, right? right. Uh, and, and as we see these absolute numbers, uh, absolute case numbers rise up, uh, definitely there are going to be more and more people that are going to be hospitalized or, or even die from the, the infection. Um, but as a percentage-wise, right, as compared to Delta or the previous Alpha variant uh, or the original variant, the percentage of hospitalization and deaths are much lower, much lower than the previous variants. Uh, mm-hmm. But of course, the absolute numbers is higher because you know the absolute number of cases are higher. So well, it really mm-hmm. getting into our area of expertise and experience, what do you tell clients today, elderly people in particular, about dealing with Omicron? Omicron. That, that's a good question, right? So elderly people are generally more vulnerable and susceptible to any sorts of diseases, whether it's an infectious disease or a non-infectious disease or any forms of diseases. So essentially, someone that is 85 years old could pick up uh, a urinary urinary tract infection or uh, just a normal pneumonia and die from it, right? Because they are more vulnerable, they are more susceptible to infections, the immune system is lower in general. So as I I mean, as I, I would tell pandemic or not, I would tell all every single you know senior citizens who are in their maybe 70s or 80s to absolutely take precaution, right? Um, whatever they are doing, they have to take precaution because they belong to the high-risk group, they belong to the vulnerable group. And uh, yeah, I mean, I would also advise them to, you know, um, continue to live a healthy lifestyle as much as they can, get um, screened, you know, get, uh, get uh, what do you call that, their medical checkup as, uh, as, as much as they can regularly. You know, all these are things, that the basics, I would say, still focus back on the basics of eating well, uh, sleeping well, resting well, have enough activities and exercise. Uh, I think these are, and supplements, if, if, if they believe in it, I think these are all um, the basics of taking care of one's health and uh, whether they're senior citizens or not, they should be, you know, also, you know, looking to looking to all these aspects. Uh, as, as far as going out to crowded places, I would still not recommend, it, recommend that. I mean, you know, go out if you need to, uh, meet your family if you need to, but going to a, to a mall or to, to to marketplace, to 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 um, all these crowded places, I, I would generally still not recommend it yet. Is is anything different being done yet in Malaysia regarding nursing centers, nursing homes, assisted living as a result of Omicron at this point? We do not have very explicit instructions from the Ministry of Health as from the beginning of the pandemic. Um, basically, they are just telling us to um, take care of ourselves. <laughs> okay yeah and and speaking of old people right um i mean cancer is a topic that we have not really talked about in the past two years because of all this media highlights and focus on on uh, the covid19 pandemic right but uh, as we know foo you know your phd um, working title your thesis is about cancer so do you want to tell us a bit more about what you're doing sure um, so I work in, uh, at, at the Penn State Cancer Institute in, in Hershey, and I know we mentioned earlier that I'm a student of West Virginia University. How did I end up in Hershey? Uh, so what happened Lovely. was, yeah, that partially, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
what happened was um, my boss actually ended up getting a promotion when when uh, I was in West Virginia, and he uh, was promoted to uh, associate director of cancer center at Penn State. He decided to accept the position. And he was in a unique position where because he was headhunted, he had the um, uh, the choice whether or not he wanted to bring his lab with him. Uh, he kind of have he has say on, he has a, a greater say on that. And he decided to move the entire lab over. I decided to go with him. That's how I ended up uh, in, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Um, but yeah, uh, my boss is a lung cancer physician. Uh, he runs a lab as well. So you can imagine uh, the kind of workload that he has. Um, but the benefits of getting to work with a lung cancer physician is that I get to see a lot more of the clinical side that other PhD students don't. Uh, so I remember one of my experiences was um, collecting tumor samples uh, from, from these patients, I don't collect them myself, but I had, I had to, I was able to be in the, uh, the operating theater along with the surgeon who was conducting the, the surgery at the time. Um, you know, I had to be there to get, be ready for the samples, uh, whenever the surgeon was ready. Um, so those kinds of experiences, I think it was, was unique to, uh, my, my PhD experience. Um, specifically what I'm researching on is, uh, the immune system, uh, and in particular, how, how does our immune system inform us of whether or not our tumor is responding to treatment? Uh, and the, the specific treatment that I'm looking at is immunotherapy, uh, which is essentially harnessing our own immune system to fight the tumor. Um, and there are, uh, what we call biomarkers or indicators, uh, that we can find to tell us whether the treatment is working or not. And the, the, the challenge in the field right now is to figure out how, uh, how do we determine if the tumor is responding or not? And how can we figure that out earlier rather than later? So that if we need to change the, the treatment regimen, we can do that uh, sooner rather than later. Um, so that's what I'm, I'm researching on is to figure out biomarkers of immune therapy response through peripheral blood, uh, which is blood that we draw, you can draw from patients. And this is these kinds of, uh, a blood draw is relatively less invasive compared to, uh, say you have to um, do a core biopsy to get a piece of the tumor. Um, peripheral blood samples are less invasive and, and could potentially be more informative if we know what to look for. So that's what I'm researching is figuring out what are we looking for in the blood samples that tell us if the tumor is responding to immunotherapy or not. So, so let me ask you this. Back in 2001, when my mother had lung cancer, Mm -hmm. How would have the treatment regimen been different then compared to today? I assume there weren't any of these biomarkers, for example. Yeah, so it, it depends um, on uh, what stage cancer she had and what, what has, she be, has she been treated with. Yeah, very little treatment. Well, her case is different. She, 
she denied it for a long time. And by the time we knew it was stage four. So that's what I yeah. know. Yeah. Um, usually, I think at that point in time, we already, the, the treatment for lung cancer had advanced to the point where um, you would do genomic testing on a sample of the tumor to figure out if the tumor was oncogene addicted. That's basically a fancy term that means, is there a gene that is driving the tumor to grow? And if there is, is there a treatment that targets that specific gene to shut it down? If we shut that gene down, we can basically kill the entire tumor. We're talking about the P58 gene, is it? Uh, in lung cancer, we look specifically for EGFR, epidermal growth factor receptor, uh, or at least the two genes that my lab are interested in is EGFR and, and ALK, which stands for anaplastic uh, lymphoma kinase. These are receptors uh, in, on, on the surface of the cell that tells the cell to grow. These are growth receptors. And usually what happens is that signal gets distorted and it's, it's telling the cell to grow all the time. There's no way to turn it off. That's how cells become cancerous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. And, and let's say if you would have this, um, your, I mean, your, your research would have existed 20 years ago when uh, Andrew's mom, late mother, had uh, lung cancer. How would it have mm -hmm. helped her in her, in her treatment regimen or, or you know, increase her, her, her success, uh, treatment success outcome? Yeah, I, I think back then, immunotherapy was just emerging as a new treatment mm -hmm. uh, method. Um, it was specifically... It was specifically effective on tumors that were not oncogene addicted. So if you had tumors that were driven by the EGFR gene, for example, you would treat them with, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the drug. It's basically an EGFR targeted therapy okay. um, to shut down the gene. But if the tumor was not oncogene addicted, your, your options were much more limited. Back, I, I think back then, even now for tumors that are not as advanced, you would use chemotherapy, a combination of maybe chemo and radiation uh, to treat the tumor. Mm -hmm. And that was basically your best shot. And it, 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 we, you know, maybe as scientists and doctors, we, for, for um, cancer research and treatment, we know that chemo radiation is not your best option, right? That's, it's basically, like carpet bombing. You're, you're throwing in uh, a bunch of really toxic material and hoping that it affects the, the tumor more than it does your normal cells. Uh -huh, right. um, but with immunotherapy, there, there, there now exists a way to, uh, to customize that, to, to make it more specific to, um, to uh, the, the, immune cells killing just the tumor cells mm -hmm. um, and limiting it from affecting uh, the normal cells as much. And the reason why people experience side effects such as loss of hair or um, you know, loss of the fingernails is after chemo chemotherapy is because these normal cells are also being affected by um, these cancer treatments. Mm -hmm. So if we had immunotherapy and we had figured out who would benefit from it and how we can monitor the, uh, the tumor's 
um, response to to the drug and when it had become resistant to the drug, if we had that back then, that would have provided uh, doctors with with, the, with an extra uh, extra tool in their toolkit um, to aid Andrew's mom in in her fight against cancer. Right. right. So they they would know better whether the drugs are working or not, as compared to just just keep using it until you know the, either the condition gets worse or they do another scan and they realize that the tumor has spread. Uh, right. Instead of doing all this um, more invasive, as you said, or more um, difficult diagnostics, um, you could just, using your research or the findings of your research, they could simply just draw the blood and say, hey, um, you know, the drug is working or the drug is not working and what's next? Yeah. So the the issue with current diagnostic methods is that it's not granular enough. Like we do PET PET scans and CT scans, and yes, you can see an image of the tumor. But what if it gets to the level where the machine can detect it and can't detect it anymore? You mean it's um, too too small to be detected? If it gets too small, if it's just a clump of cells, and if it lodges somewhere else in in your body, it's going to grow into a, a metastatic tumor. Um, but the uh, uh, traditional diagnostic methods are not are not going to be able to pick that up, mm-hmm. um, and in the with with blood draw, um, as as far as I know from my experience working with my boss, is that these patients are coming in for uh, uh, um, in, an infusion or blood draw once every two cycles, depending on the treatment. Once every two cycles of treatment, anyways. So they're already having their their blood drawn. We just need a little bit extra to determine what are the biomarkers in their blood to see if um, they're responding to the drug to the treatment or not. Yeah, that that's very interesting. I mean, just a little fun fact here for those that are listening. I mean, uh, you know, if you wonder why people going through chemotherapy loses their hair, their fingernails, or they have vomiting or retching or uh, sometimes diarrhea, it's because um, the chemotherapy generally target what we call fast-growing cells or fast-splitting um, cells. So basically, tumors are cells that are, are growing very fast. They're, they're dividing very fast. They're splitting very fast. Therefore, um, the chemotherapy is meant to target these tumor cells. But our hair follicle cells, our fingernails, our, our gut, our you know, intestines, gut cells, they're also fast-growing cells as well, fast-dividing, fast-splitting cells. Therefore, the chemotherapy actually sometimes could mistake those as tumor uh, tumor cells and attack those places as well. Therefore, you get all the symptoms. Right. Well, let me uh, ask a question here. And, and excuse me, I'm not a scientist or a doctor or a PhD <laughs> candidate. Um, but Fu, you talked about sort of the targeting of cells with these new advances here. Is mm-hmm. there a parallel between this new class of COVID vaccines and what you're doing in terms of cancer research? Aren't these vaccines um, trying to target as well? So... From what I understand about the vaccines, uh, the current COVID vaccines, is that uh, they're mRNA-based, which means that um, there's a part of the virus that that scientists are able to clone and uh, and inject and to kind of use that to tell the body, okay, make this protein and train the immune cells to recognize that protein. Um, so that if the the individual gets infected with the virus, the immune system already recognizes 
the 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 protein that is on the virus. In a sense, it is similar, um, where we are training the immune system in terms of immunotherapy, cancer immunotherapy. We are training the immune system to recognize what's cancer cells and what's not. Right. And the the biggest issue is because most cancer arises from normal cells. So it's still going to have normal cell properties that it's going to signal to the, to the immune cells saying, Hey, don't kill me. I'm actually a part of you. Um, as, so compared the to the, then, as compared to the external virus, virus cell from COVID, right? Because the external right. virus cell will be easily recognizable by the immune system right. as a foreign right. body it's, as compared to the cancer cells. Yeah. Right. It's, it's easier to tell your immune cells that the COVID virus is foreign than to tell it, hey, your own cells have, have gone haywire. We need you to clean it up. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like we could get there eventually, though, right? Yeah. There's, so a lot of cancer treatment specifically is moving to more personalized therapy, right. where we're looking at specifically what gene you have mutated in your tumor, or if lack thereof, do you have... Um, are you a qualified candidate for immunotherapy or what kind of immunotherapy, right? So my research specifically is looking at what we call checkpoint inhibition therapy, which is basically the molecules on your immune cells uh, that are communicating with the molecules on your uh, normal cells that are telling them um, this is a normal cell, don't kill me. So checkpoint inhibition therapy will break that communication and which allows the immune cells to recognize the tumor cell as foreign and try to kill them. Um, The challenges in recognizing, number one, who is eligible? um, What are the conditions that need to be met before we know that immunotherapy will work? And number two is how can we monitor the patient on treatment, whether they're gonna respond or um, if the tumor is going to resist the drug. Mm. So, so the research, you don't really know this yet. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Yeah, so the, the research I'm working on is to, is to develop a longitudinal, that's just a fancy word meaning continuous, um, a, a method of continuously assessing um, the patient's response to immunotherapy so we can catch it as the, um, the tumor is becoming resistant to the treatment. And that can inform doctors whether or not it, it may be worth it to switch to a different uh, treatment regimen uh, that may benefit the patient better. Right, that, that's really interesting. And um, I don't know how, you know, how long um, it will, it's going to take for, this, uh, for your findings in your research to be practiced um, widely in the medical uh, industry. But uh, I do see that if this is being adopted and being widely used in, in cancer treatment or in, in our practices, uh, it would really benefit the patients. Now, uh, I'm going to ask you a little bit of a, more of a controversial questions and maybe let's go down a little bit of a, into the rabbit hole. Since you are in the U, I mean, you, you, are, you are doing your research in the U.S., I mean, there's a lot of saying that the, you know, that the drug companies are suppressing the cure for cancer mm. because, you know, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiotherapy, they're making them so much money that they have no motivation to have permanent cures for cancer. Um, 
you know, you being the US, what have you heard and what do you think about this statement? And is, is this just a, like a tinfoil hat conspiracy theory or there could be some basis of truth in it? <laughs> yeah, that's, there's def- that's definitely not the first time I've heard of that. Uh, there are people who have made similar comments um, uh, that I've, I've interacted with. <clears throat> and my response usually to that is uh, if there is a cure-all for cancer, I haven't heard of it yet, but then again, I'm, I don't know everything in the cancer research or cancer treatment field. Uh, so take that with a grain of salt, but, uh, it, I would imagine it'd be very difficult to hide, um, because, uh, there's so many parties that are interested, uh, you know, whether it's personally interested or financially interested in, in finding a cure all for cancer, imagine if a drug company comes up with a drug that can cure all kinds of lung cancer, regardless of whether or not they're oncogene addicted or they have their immune, if their immune system is ready for the treatment or not. If you can come up with that drug, you basically own the cancer treatment field and everybody has to come to you to get the drug. And I, it's just, it would be baffling to me to imagine not moving forward with that. So if you just think about purely from a financial perspective, that would benefit that drug company a lot. Um, and I think the other thing is, is in terms of personal investment, you know, most of us know somebody who has had cancer mm-hmm. and that, that would be, I would imagine that statistic would be similar even among company executives, the CEOs and COOs of the company. So even if, there is a cure-all drug. I I would imagine that we would have a whistleblower by now, if that were true. Uh, So it's just because of all these reasons, I I personally believe that it's difficult um, to say for sure, but I am reasonably confident that there is not yet a cure-all for cancer. I'd imagine a drug like that would could be worth hundreds of billions of dollars to a yeah. pharmaceutical company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Andrew, being American, you think that there is no cure-all drugs and it's just a conspiracy theory as of now? Yeah, I tend to agree with Fu. I, I think the conspiracy theories are, are blown out of proportion a bit in that I think there is strong economic incentive for pharmaceutical companies to come up with something Obviously, there are issues around patent protection, how long it lasts, all of that. But I think there's stronger economic incentives to come up with these cure-alls than probably to hide it. Right. Yeah. And just to inject a little bit of a scientific perspective here, because working with, I mean, I'm only working with lung cancer. And, and when you get to, to the level of um, doing research in a lab, you start to realize how varied lung cancer is. So you know, when we initially diagnosed lung cancer, it was by histology. You know, what, what did the cells look small or big? So we called them small cell lung cancer versus non-small cell lung cancer. And now as, as, as our knowledge in lung cancer advanced, we're further able to, to dissect them into smaller categories where within non-small cell lung cancer, you have adenocarcinoma versus squamous cell carcinoma versus large cell carcinoma and, and all the, all sorts of uh, different categories. But that, that just goes to show you that that um, there there are just way too many variations of even just lung cancer that 
it's difficult to find one drug that would cure all of it. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's just looking at it histologically. We're just looking at the, the tumor cells under a microscope and we're seeing their morphology, we're seeing what they look like, and we diagnose them that way. And that used to be the way that we would decide what kind of treatment to give to the patients. But now, you know, I think this was uh, a decade or two ago, maybe even earlier than that, that we've come up with um, genomic testing. And now we can figure out, oh, even if a patient has lung adenocarcinoma, are, they, are their tumors EGFR driven? Are they ALK driven? And with that knowledge, you know, pharmaceutical companies have developed drugs to target those genes specifically that are able to help with patients who have that specific, um, specific gene driving their tumors. So, and now we're moving into the next step of, of uh, immunotherapy, um, where now it is, um, this is the patient's not only not only we're we looking at the patient's tumor, we're also looking at the immune environment uh, of the patient's tumor. Like one of the things that uh, that that uh, scientists are advocating for that we should start looking uh, we should start looking for in in before we decide whether or not to give the patient immunotherapy is whether or not immune cells are able to get into where the tumor is. So these are these are what we call tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. It's basically mm-hmm. white blood cells that are close to the tumor. Mm-hmm. If you don't have white blood cells close to the tumor in the first place, your immune therapy might not even work because your your white blood cells are not even getting there in the first place. Mm-hmm. So then you might want to consider a different therapy that increases vas- vascularization around the tumor, such that your um, your immune cells are able to be transported to where the tumor is. So, but I say all that to say that we, as our knowledge of cancer, not just lung cancer, but and this is true for different, uh, different for the different cancers as well. But as our knowledge of of the different kinds of cancer grows, we we recognize how uh, how diverse of a of a um, disease we're actually looking at. We call all of them cancer just because. Uh, it's uncontrolled division of cells, um, but when you talk about treatment, you, it's difficult to find just one drug that will cure everything, even though that might be the ideal uh, moving forward. Um, but that's another reason why I believe that uh, there is not a cure-all for cancer, not yet at least. Okay. okay. That makes a lot of sense, I think. Now, um. Um, being in the field of cancer research, you know, I'm sure you are you are keeping abreast of uh, all the latest updates and you know news that are coming out from the cancer research community. Is there anything that has caught your eye that you think is a, a very promising step forward uh, for for mankind when it comes to human? Uh, sorry, cancer research. Anything that I, caught I, your eye? I do think immunotherapy will be the next big thing. If if it's not. If it's not already, if it's not already the next big thing, it's very, it's still um, very expensive, though. Yeah, sorry, the nurse is me. Thank you. Just uh, delivered some my afternoon snack. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Um, I was saying it's still very expensive, like immunotherapy. 
Yeah, it, it is. So one of the things that uh, one of the privileges I get to enjoy as a scientist is I don't have to worry about how much money is going into this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, I, but that that is a, a concern um, that that I hear from you know, my friends who are doctors as well. It's it, it, it's what they're prescribing to patients um, going to cripple them financially. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just let's give them the best treatment available so we can get rid of their disease, but our, is what we were prescribing to them um, going to cause them to come out of the other of the other end more worse off? You know, worse off. Yeah. Are, are there so, are there critics to immunotherapy? Are there other types of research going on where people say, "Well, we have a better idea how to deal with lung cancer." Um, I, as far as I know, a lot of, most of the research right now is just looking at the different, um, specifications for lack of a better word is what we're looking at very specific things about lung cancer. So what I've been explained to before, uh, by one of my mentors is that if you, if you imagine the research field as a star, um, everybody's doing research to expand the borders of the star by just a little bit. And if you're doing research that is too far out of the star, then most people are going to ignore your research because there's not enough evidence building up to what you're looking into. Um, but just to, using the same star analogy, um, it, it's, there's different groups that are looking into different aspects of lung cancer. So my my lab group is looking at specifically uh, how do we catch when the lung cancer when lung cancers are becoming resistant to the treatment, uh, and how can we identify that? There are other groups looking into how can we detect lung cancer better uh, in the diagnostics and detection field, uh, and there are other groups looking into uh, more like public policy. Can't, how can we um, guide patient decision into like maybe do more screenings to see if a tumor is, is, is coming out in your lung. Um, and what, at what age do we recommend people do that and, and things like that? Right, right, right. Interesting. Interesting. So as we, as we are, we're coming, to, um, we're coming to the top of the hour, we are finishing, um, we're going to uh, start to wrap up the, the show and uh, as we are, you know, go towards our clo- uh, going towards our closing. So, Fu, what's what's going to be next for you? I mean, you're finishing your PhD. You've done all this research. Uh, what's going to be next for you? Are you are you going to continue to pursue a career in academics? Or are you looking to go into the industry? Um, yeah, that will be the that will be the logical next step. If uh, usually, it traditionally is most PhDs would go for a postdoc, and then after postdoc, you would go for an assistant professor position, go on the tenure track. That usually takes about six, seven years. Then you graduate, quote unquote, graduate into a, an associate professor position. Um, it, it, that used to be the more attractive route. But recently, especially in the scientific field, um, it seems that funding is very limited. Uh, so a lot of the money is going to people who have more established research, people who are uh, who have proven their worth in the field. They apply for, for grant funding. It's 
more likely that they'll get it instead of a, a junior research professor, for example. Um, so a lot of my peers who are uh, in the same PhD program as I am are looking more into industry and how uh, we can use our PhD skills there. Um, me personally, I'm looking more into uh, like a, a medical science liaison position, um, which is uh, basically we would be, I, I would be a translator. I would be the guy talking to the scientific team and also talking to the business team, uh, making sure that we're all on the same page. Whatever the business team wants, uh, I'll, I'll have to translate it to a language in a way that the scientists will be able to understand. And if the scientific team has any limitations, I need to be able to bring that up with the management team uh, and uh, tell them about it as well. So I, I feel like I do have a skill uh, in, in, in this aspect, in this area, where um, I'm a, one of my top skills is explaining science to non-scientists. So I would like to find a job that's able to harness that. And it does seem like the medical science liaison position would allow me to uh, pursue that the best. And uh, will you continue with your research or... Um you know, you're going to be more focused on what's going on in the industry. It, it's, it's so even in, in um, even for PhD students who continue on in academia, very few of them actually uh, continue along with the same research that they did in their PhD uh, while they're in their PhD program. Um, but even for me, that's I, I'd imagine that to be even less so the case where you know it, it really depends where uh which company i get um hired on i i do wish to keep my focus still on cancer uh just because my background is, is, is in cancer um and i do have a passion to uh to see this disease be better controlled and you know if i can contribute in any way to it um all the better but um, that's the, that's where I see I, I can, I can best contribute. All right. Andrew, do you have anything else for him? No, I, I think this was a very interesting discussion, very enlightening, and I probably reached the end of my knowledge in this area. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I, I feel a little bit smarter as well uh, after this conversation, like, um, Although we, we do communicate very often, uh, my brother and I, Fu and I, uh, but we, we seldom go, you know, deep diving into what he actually does uh, in, in his research. And, and yeah, today, I, I think I have learned a few things as well. And, and I appreciate that you guys giving me a, an opportunity to kind of share um, what I've learned. And that one of the things that a, a scientist definitely can do better on is, um, is talking about our research. And that's what our program is actively encouraging us to do. And I'm very, very happy to have this opportunity to do that. It, it, it does bring up one last question for me, at least, is I have heard a lot of concern in the U.S. about the communication from government scientists concerning COVID-19. What's mm -hmm. been your reaction to the scientific community's communication about <clears throat> COVID in the U.S.? Yeah, so... I've, I've, I've heard different perspectives from this. Um, and I think 
the one that is most rational to me is that uh, the government scientists uh, just have to tell people they don't know if they don't know. Right. Instead of instead of trying to manipulate the conversation to fit a, a specific narrative better, is you know, hey, we're scientists, right? We can only tell you the scientific facts and what we what we know about the disease and what we don't know about the disease. And I think that is fair. And I, I think that that um, a lot of government scientists have turned into politicians where they're trying to push a specific narrative rather than just be scientifically honest about their findings. And we have well, actually- that's been a concern regarding this recent change in the U.S. from 10 days to five days isolation, where some people think that that's, that decision was not purely scientifically driven, but driven in part to help the business community and their needs. <laughs> and we are definitely not talking about Anthony Fauci. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mentioning any names. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, I think we are seeing this not just in the scientific uh, community, not just in academia, but we're also seeing this, uh, this, this same trend with uh, so-called objective journalism and, you know, right. all this uh, other different fields as well. And not just in the US, I think it's not exclusively in the US. I think it's, it's being in Malaysia as well. And, and it's just so difficult for professionals, you know, quote unquote, you know, to, to just admit that they are not sure or they are wrong or, you know, and, and when so many times in, during this COVID pandemic, like, you know, they were wrong about something that they did, I'm talking about Malaysian politicians, the decision makers, they're wrong about something. And uh, they, they could not just have admitted it. Um, and, and, Instead of just uh, uh, saying that, okay, I'm wrong, uh, you know, now we have to make changes, you know, they couldn't just admit that. That's like, you know, like if, if I can just uh, borrow, uh, borrow a, a, a joke from my, one of my uh, favorite comedians, right? It's like arriving, like, you know, you are in, in a lift, right, an elevator, and you're supposed to go to the ground floor. And somebody comes in between and, and press the third floor. And... Uh, Instead of, uh, uh, so, so when the, the, the lift opened up on the third floor, um, you not being aware that the third floor button has been pressed, uh, or I, I not being aware that the third floor button is being pressed, walked out of the lift or the elevator and then realized I'm at the wrong floor. Instead of just saying, oh crap, I'm at the wrong floor, go back to the elevator, go down to the ground floor. I now say the third floor is the ground floor. <laughs> and whoever that doesn't agree with me, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to massacre everybody. You know, well, that's, that, very, that, that's very true. I found in, in both the scientific community that's been politicized to some extent and politics themselves is, you know, if you're going to be successful in those areas, it seems like you can never admit you're wrong. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think, I think admitting, I mean, it, the ability of admitting one's fault is, is a very critical uh, part of learning and moving forward as a, as right. a human race. And I definitely look forward to more, honest and authentic people coming out, whether it's in the political sphere or in the, from the scientific community. And um, looking forward to more of that. And hopefully, yeah. Fu, you're going to be one, one of them. <laughs> yeah. No, so one of the things that I've heard recently, um, <clears throat> it, it, one of the sayings I've heard recently, and I think it's very true, is that science doesn't say anything. Scientists say something. Which tells me that whenever I... Um, share my opinion on, 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 on any scientific fact, 
I have to watch out for my own biases, that I'm not injecting my own biases into these um, scientific claims or these inter interpretations of, of, of my results, uh, or that if, even if I, or that if I am, that I make it clear that this is my opinion, uh, or this is my interpretation of the data, so that I'm not misleading anybody. Mm -hmm. Well, not just that, but as a scientist, if you bring your own biases and, and mislead people in your field, that could have significant harm to lots of people, right? Yeah. So, so my perspective now is that it's basically, so when you're writing scientific journals, there is a section called discussion. That is where you put in uh, how you interpret your data and kind of what is the the evidence to support the way that you interpret your data. Right. Uh, so for me, it's it's difficult for scientists. I, I I wouldn't say you need to eliminate all of your biases, but rather to be able to identify them, uh, so that you can adequately discuss them and say, okay, if this is just a bias, is it um, productive? Like, is it is it helpful? to help us find the next step, the next thing to do to help advance science? Or is it a bias that uh, is just going to hinder the progress of science? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think one of the key elements is to not be, not be afraid of having intellectual discourse, uh, to getting into a, an intellectual discourse or discussion with, with uh, somebody, somebody that does not agree with us. I think we should really keep all these conversations going and part of the the, the um, the the point of this show uh, is to also you know get these discussions going such that we, we are not uh, skewed by the mainstream media what the media is telling us but we can actually have you know open discussions and 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 conversations like this so uh, like this to 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 you know ed further educate ourselves and and for us to learn and I think on that note uh, it's a it's a great way to end uh, this episode once again. Um, my name is Dr. Lim Fu. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, we wish you well, and uh, hopefully you can get out of quarantine as soon as possible. Um, Andrew, do you have any last words? No, it's been a great discussion, and I'm sorry we had to do it under these circumstances, but I'm glad you're asymptomatic, and uh, hopefully you'll be out of there soon as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This is this has been the Dr. Prunus Podcast. I'm Dr. Lim Gengyan. Together with me is my co-host, Andrew Mastrindonas. We're going to see you in two weeks. This is the Dr. Prunus Podcast.